0: Welcome to Chatter. I'm Shane Harris. And I'm David Priest. And this week, we give thanks to our guests, to our audience, and to each other after a year of podcasting.
1: This is a special episode of Chatter because I can't say welcome to the show, honored guest. Uh, And Shane cannot say welcome to the show, honored guest, because our guests are each other, so I'll just say welcome, Shane Harris.
0: Welcome, David Priest.
1: It's a pleasure to to speak with you. Are you, know, you
0: interviewing me, or am I interviewing you? I think
1: the answer is yes.
0: Is this like that Spider-Man meme where they're pointing at each other?
1: It is, but I, I'm very nervous about where your webs are coming from. So, <laughs> so let's hold back on the on the analogy here. Oh my! <laughs> um, we are we are approaching Thanksgiving, mm-hmm. which is yes. a wonderful time to look back and reflect on. The, the previous year, since the last Thanksgiving, and it's been a personally difficult one for both of us mm-hmm. in some oddly parallel ways, but also a really rewarding one in some new ways. And that includes our joint project here with Lawfare right. Chatter, because I know you have spoken to some remarkable individuals who I have appreciated listening to and learning from. Uh, and I hope you, you feel the same way about some of the conversations I've had. And, of course, we've had a couple of joint conversations. We have. We've. we've this guests. is not
0: the first time we've been in the studio together. No, but it is it the first time so in a while. It is. Yeah. Do people know the Chatter origin story? Should we tell that story?
1: I think we could talk about it a little more. We we introduced it on the Lawfare podcast at mm-hmm. the time. That's right. But not so much on Chatter. So let's go back to – Cold winter's day in 1980. No, I don't, <laughs> I was I don't think like, was we have to it cold? go back to your birth story. Uh-huh. Um, Cheddar, Cheddar developed because you and I had similar ideas at a similar time, right. and, and the stars aligned. So tell people what you were doing and what you were thinking that you brought to the table.
0: Yeah, so I was hosting Rational Security, mm-hmm. which which lives on. Do we still call it Rational Security 2.0? They've, they've, they've shed the 2.0, I think. Or, no, they say, Kara says they still call it that. Rational, rational security, <laughs> more something. rational, more secure. Um, <clears throat> so I was hosting that, and then we, collectively, me and Ben Wittus and Tamara Wittus and Susan Hennessy made the decision to to hang it up because both Susan and Tammy were going to work in the administration. Um, Susan has a very interesting job these days, uh, as as does Dammy. Um, and so we thought, like, it's kind of like you know when when you know your favorite sitcom, like you know one of the, the characters leave, it's like you know. Yeah. Let's do it before they bring on a baby uh, nice. and try and reboot. <laughs> uh, so we thought, yeah, let's, let's hang it up. But I was – one of the things that I loved about rational security was every week for object lesson, I would try to bring on something that was you know a new movie or yes. a book or a television show I was obsessed with in the theme of national security or mm-hmm. foreign policy. Mm-hmm. And that was sort of my chance to kind of – you know, share that other part of my interests, but also, you know, that's a genre that I'm deeply interested in both as a consumer and as somebody who would like to, to write in that area too. And uh, so it was fun. It was like my little five minutes where I got to like, not even five, like two minutes where I would get to geek out on it. And with I, no
1: pressure on you because this was something you brought to the table, sometimes spur of the moment, yeah, totally. sometimes with a few minutes of forethought. Yeah. But you could just give your idea and, and, and run with it as long as you wanted to or more often as, as briefly as you wanted to.
0: Yeah, totally. So, like, that was where I flagged for readers that or listeners that I had discovered this French television show, The Bureau, mm. uh, or, you know, um, uh, a new book that I had read or something like that. Um, so it was great. It was like this other part of me that I didn't really get to express very much in my day job as a journalist at The Post and that I didn't really get to – we didn't really have a home for on rational security other than object lessons. So I thought, what if – I could just, like, bring these kinds of people into a studio and interview them for an hour or an hour and a half, uh, you know, once a month or a couple times a month or whatever. And then you, it turns mm-hmm. out, were thinking.
1: Thinking similarly from a, from a different vantage point, exactly. right, because I had not been co-hosting Rational Security. But I was thinking that uh, on the Lawfare podcast feed, where I'd done a number of, of, of interviews of interesting guests on national security-related topics, that some of the most personally rewarding ones, some of the more entertaining ones from my perspective were the ones that were on, I don't want to call them fringe areas, uh, but the ones that were not traditional, long-term, hardcore national security issues, Mm -hmm. right? It wasn't about tanks and the laws of war, kind of the, the sweet spot for lawfare. It was sometimes the ones that touched on technology, that touched on history, that touched on culture in ways that, you know, people turn their head, you know, the things that made people say, hmm, right? Mm-hmm. This, yeah. Oh, what an interesting way to look at this. Right. And I thought there was more room to explore those. But the Lawfare podcast has has its set format, has a set time. And at the same moment, I was also spending a lot of time listening to podcasts like Sam Harris, Making mm-hmm. Sense, where he will sometimes have three, four hour interviews. And somehow they never seem too long, right? In part, that's because the guest selection. In part, that's because... It's about letting the conversation go where it needs to go and, and where it's still fruitful. And so I can't remember how we did it, but either either we were texting or we sat down together and we kind of realized that our two ideas were not coterminous, but they were very similar, very similar. Yeah. in terms of yeah, what we yeah. wanted to do. Yours more from the entertainment side, but mm-hmm. both of us exploring cultural issues around national security. Right. So here's the way... We phrased it originally when we were talking about the idea. Oh, you have the original text. I do. And this is, this may even be in, I don't even know if this is in the podcast feed notes anywhere, but we talked about chatter being intriguing ideas in entertainment, history, Mm -hmm. technology, and culture that are increasingly interacting with national security. Chatter brings you long form, intimate conversations with refreshing thinkers who work at these frontiers we will talk weekly with hollywood writers, washington power brokers, spy novelists, scientific explorers, historians and others about the challenging issues of our time from climate change to cultural history, astrobiology to artificial intelligence and beyond. And i think looking at what we've done in 50 plus episodes, mm-hmm. i think we kind of i think we've hit most of that. I think that's right? mission accomplished, David. Yeah. Some I more think than we others, nailed it. But we've hit a lot of those Areas, yeah. So, when I, in fact,
0: we had a Hollywood writer for our very first episode. We did, Joe Joe Weisberg, I'm getting ahead of ourselves, as right. I recall. Right? Yeah, was was right. the very first Created in, of the
1: Americans in the very first few months? Actually, we had everything from a uh, U.S. Congressman, Adam Kinzinger, mm-hmm. to former intelligence community leaders, to writers of fiction, to producers in Hollywood, mm-hmm. and activists. I, we we hit a lot of different angles on that and I wanna I do want to spend some time walking through that, but there's one thing I realize we never said at the beginning of this endeavor. We came up with a name chatter mm-hmm. in part because these are informal, longer form conversations. But I don't think we ever stated explicitly from our joint interest in intelligence that chatter does have a meaning yes. that, that does touch on a, a substantial number of the topics we ended up hitting in our various episodes. So when you hear chatter professionally, mm-hmm. what do you think?
0: We think intercepted communications. We think eavesdropping. You know, We think uh, we the United States has picked up chatter among Russian operatives mm-hmm. talking about what they want to do in Ukraine. Um, you know, chatter is—it is a form of intelligence, right? It's—it's it's something that you have overheard that the speaker doesn't know that you're picking up on. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, <clears throat> I should say, in journalism too, we use you know chatter in the same way that you hear. Uh, like, you know, there's gossip or rumor or there's talk that, you know, people are saying a phrase we may be hearing more again of, David. Mm-hmm. People are saying, "Oh dear," we're not going to talk about that. Um, but yeah, chatter has this, you know, this meaning in in the worlds in which, you know, you were professionally, and I guess I do too, as, as somebody covering it, um, that is quite specific. So it was a lovely play on words um, for those in the know. And, and, and if not, chatter has the perfectly a uh, 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 serviceable colloquial definition that you just described.
1: And I think we've we've done that as we reflect back on what we've done and use this as an opportunity to give thanks primarily to our, our guests, uh, but also to those who help make this happen, like Kara Schillen, Absolutely. the intrepid Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. She's
0: blushing, she's right over there blushing.
1: <laughs> I like that. And the others at our partners, Goat yep. Rodeo, others at Lawfare who have, who have helped us pull this together. And, and our listeners as well, who have given us some great feedback and some great encouragement. Big time. This, this is a Thanksgiving special because it is all of those things, right? Now, we, But no songs. And no turkey. No turkey. Damn, I, mean, I could I mean, have brought a turkey. One of us may be the turkey, right? It you, you
0: could be. Do you watch, by the way, do you watch Only Murders in the Building, another show about podcasts? I do not. So there's a roast turkey reference. I'm not going to say, you'll see. Don't spoil People it. People who listen to it will know. I okay. could have brought a roast turkey.
1: All right. We'll leave it there. But we won't leave it there talking about the last year that we want to give thanks for. So for me, one of the joys of this project has been using Chatter as a vehicle to basically dig deeper on a lot of issues related to national security that I probably would have picked up a book on or or tried to reach out to somebody and just bounce ideas off of, but instead we do it through a conversation. some of those things I would have explored anyway, but some of them I would not have. So I'm, I'm grateful for the chance to do that. I'm especially grateful to listen to your episodes because mm-hmm. you're hitting some things that I didn't even know I was fascinated in until I heard the whole episode. So I want to call back some of my favorites that, that I've heard from you in the past year and as a way of springing forward to some of the things that we, we hope to do in the future. So... From me, when I look back at the, all the things that, that you've done during the past year, the one that keeps coming back to me more than any other is your conversation with Laurie Anderson, mm. multimedia mm. artist. Uh, I grew up knowing Laurie Anderson, not personally, but she was still a part of my life. I think my first introduction was through um, Excellent Birds, the, the the song that was on the So album by Peter Gabriel, but also on Laurie's album in a different form, and then discovering over the years that she had done both amazing music uh, before that, which I, I got to know somewhat, but then that she w- she was crafting in every medium possible. Totally, I mean, you name it, and she was there. It was sculpture, it was visual. It was writing. It was uh, it was it was everywhere. What I I liked about that chat you had with her, however, was was not learning more about that, which I did mm-hmm. and appreciated. But I love the fact that she turned the tables on you, like, right away. (laughs) She totally did. (laughs) She ended up getting stories out of you that I didn't know. Oh, really? Stories about your past, stories about the way that you looked at something, because Hmm. it was a true conversation, not what I would call an interview. Uh And I just found myself physically, you know, moving towards the speaker. Like, I was drawn into that conversation because she was drawing you into that conversation. And to me, that's... One of the benefits of of chatter is we've had the opportunity to really develop a relationship with some of the guests so that it becomes more than just tell me three things about what you're working on Mm -hmm. but it becomes let me get to know you a little bit
0: yeah she like she did the whole journalist trick of like turning the tables didn't she what was interesting to me about that interview and really gratifying as well is that i i was not as familiar as you were with her work and i went to go see this retrospective that she had at the hirshhorn and was just completely knocked out by it. And and was aware of, you know, some of the more you know popular things that she had done. But you kind of walk in to this exhibit and there's this timeline hmm. of you know everything that she's been involved with, with all of the people who she's worked with, Peter Gabriel and Brian Eno and you know and and, and lesser known people as well in music and art. And, you know, you kind of think to yourself, like, gosh, where's this person been all my life? And you're like, everywhere. She's been everywhere your whole life. She's all around you. And so it was this great thing. And she had a couple exhibits in the retrospective, which were germane to our topic. So she had a really moving the most visible piece of this was this um, exhibit where she took a detainee from guantanamo bay and Mm -hmm. she projected his image onto this giant chair so it almost looked like he was (laughs) sitting in the chair that abraham lincoln sits in in the lincoln memorial um and it was it was an exhibit she had created earlier talking about his case where you know he had spent many many years in the prison and ultimately was released and kind of was a man Mm -hmm. without a country there were never any charges brought against him so it was this really thoughtful um, kind of response to that period in history and in a way that struck me as just sophisticated and it was, it was not polemical. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was it was obviously very critical and it was, you know it was, um, you know, pointing out that she felt that an injustice had been done to him. But it was not um, it was not what I was used to seeing. It was it was, leading, it was leading with the art. It was leading with the the image and the, and the, um, the exhibition that she made. I loved it, and I kind of came out of this exhibit. And I was with my husband, Joe, and I kind of said, you know, God, it would be great to get her on the podcast, which was still fairly new at that point. And I found her email address, I think, on a website. and Or somebody, <laughs> like, a, connected to a record label, whatever. So I fired this off this email. And and listeners should know, too, that sometimes when we go to find these guests, it's like firing off in the dark hoping somebody responds. And they don't always, but when they do, as Lori Anderson did, and says right away, yeah, sure, I'll do it. It's great. I was thrilled and I mean and from, from my perspective that was we had some pretty big names on but I think by that point I mean like she's probably I'm just looking over the list of who've been on up to that point mm-hmm. probably the most famous person we'd had mm-hmm. on the show and um, it was just great and I loved it and what was also funny too is that she's this. Incredibly sophisticated technical multimedia artist and it never fails. We had trouble connecting. Of course for <laughs> Zencastr So we had to work out the kinks, but, um, but it was great.
1: That was also at the time. This was at the very beginning of 2022 right so We'd gone through the pandemic and, and you got a chance to bond with her about experiences in the pandemic mm-hmm. in Washington and New That's York, right. about going actually going into a museum because that it had been closed for yes. so long.
0: The Hirshhorn had been closed, as many had.
1: And that was in, in a way a, a a coming out party mm-hmm. for hey, we're 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 re entering spaces again that have been closed to us yes. in, in so many ways. And and what a wonderful way to do it for you to to witness her art in person and to yeah. see that. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, do I get to so, – you know, we're going to go back and forth. I get to tell you one of mine now? Ooh,
1: I would love that. Okay.
0: So I really loved – it's one of the first – I think it's the second one you did was mm-hmm. um, the Sue Gordon interview. Mm-hmm. And the re, so Sue Gordon, for those who don't remember, was the number two intelligence officer as the principal deputy director for national intelligence mm-hmm. uh, in the Trump years. But it had a, a very long, decades-long career before that. Uh, a CIA officer, ran the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, right? Did mm. she, was she director of NGO? I'm trying
1: to remember. Her, her full resume is so impressive. Yeah. And, and uh, honestly, some of the most impressive things are the things that aren't as public, like running in QTEL the, right. uh, from the CIA side or helping to get it started, I should say. Right. Um, the venture capital investment arm of CIA that's led to some wonderful technologies for, for all of us, in fact. So yeah her resume is is amazing
0: yeah and really just like one of the leading lights in the intelligence community and you know kind of a rock star for people who know her but a very very big name in that world who is nevertheless not a household name mm-hmm. to a lot of people um, but you also talked to her about basketball that's right her career as a basketball player mm-hmm. in college
1: basketball star in college yeah, a four-year captain at Duke and Which we will that. not
0: hold against her the company went away for us
1: coming in as a freshman. And being elected captain, that doesn't happen, right? Yeah. Especially when you're not starting every game. But there was something about her leadership uh, potential, and then her actual leadership, even upon coming to campus, that that her teammates said, "Okay, we need her to help get us and over the hump." And they did. Duke was not doing well at that yeah. point, and then it suddenly was doing yeah. very well.
0: Yeah, and she's and, and it, it was just it was one of the things that we were intrigued by, and you particularly were intrigued by. With the idea for the podcast was, can you find somebody who is really accomplished and well known in one field mm-hmm. and find out what is the thing from their past, or that is not their profession that they use to draw upon for their work? And for her, it was a lot about sports as being informative of her views on leadership, and like that is what she is. She is a leader. That is what she does. That's what she's done for a long time. So it, w- it was great, and I think that it was also nice that you you take this person who. So much of her career is secretive, and she's not well-known. You get to talk to her about, like, playing college basketball. So it's, it's all – I like when these interviews – one of the things we've tried to do with them is to make these people very – is to be very humanizing. And when you get people – or like Adam Kinzinger, you know, who you had on, where you kind of – the whole idea of this show is you're stripping back a lot of the artifice and you're giving people the room to right. breathe and to speak because you know it's going to be for an hour plus plus. Um, and it turns out when you just listen to people they have lots of stories to tell you and she was really emblematic of
1: that. I'm glad you brought up uh, Adam Kinzinger too because that, that was an interesting pairing as I recall those episodes were were back to back right next to each yeah, other at the very beginning and, and what a study in contrast so Sue Gordon not known much to the general public and yet immensely important in the national security world, and getting to talk about some of those those issues. Adam Kinzinger, at that point, very well known in the outside world right. because of what he was doing with the January 6th committee. He had just made the decision not to run again because right. of the redistricting in Illinois. That basically froze him out of a seat. So here's somebody that people had gotten to know that was a public figure. He was in headline news. And instead, we, we spent a lot of time talking about uh, core values, where they come from. So he and I went to the same high school in central Illinois, had the same social studies teachers that turned us on to uh, to working in political and national security areas. Uh, not there at the same time. Uh, mm-hmm. he's, he's, he's a bit younger than me. But there there's something there to talk about these things that don't come out when he's interviewed on the national news media. Uh, and that's something I'm grateful for, is the opportunity to talk to people and get kind of what what made you the way you are? What makes you tick? What, what is it that got you on the path that you're on now? Because so many listeners are people who are, are still trying to find their way. And that, that could be people our age and beyond. Mm-hmm. Or, uh, more often, younger listeners who are in graduate school and are listening to this to get a perspective on, I know I want to do something involving journalism right. or media or government or analysis, but I don't know what let me let me listen to people talk about what got them to where they are yeah and i like and i like that especially when it's somebody that people have a sense of who they are but they don't know how they got to who they are
0: and especially somebody like Kinzinger, who was also so you know people have heard a lot from him in the whole context of you know he is an anti-trump never trump republican mm-hmm. so he has had a real platform to talk about his views in a way that you know probably you know, a congressman of his age, you know, probably wouldn't, (laughs) maybe just into such national prominence. Uh, I know he was a veteran. He's, you know, is very sued on foreign affairs as well. Um, But because he had this platform to talk about it, but, you know, he had never really come out and talk much about himself. So that's another thing that is nice about these kinds of interviews is even somebody who's had as much exposure as him, you're bringing out parts of his story that he hadn't really had a chance to discuss. Uh, And I think that too, Tends to be humanizing. Important, I think, with p- political figures as well. When everything is just so polarized in Washington, and it's very easy mm. to caricature um, people. So it's been it's been nice to sort of have some of these people who don't have a chance to really. You know, talk like the normal people that they are. Um, come on and do that in the show, because we don't ask people to come on and necessarily turn this into. It's it's not a political podcast. It's it's a right. It's a personality podcast.
1: And important to note that yes, we we've had one uh, sitting member of Congress on the show so far, and he happens to be a Republican. Uh, that that was not why we brought him right. on, and we are in the works to have a, a counterpart who is a Democrat mm-hmm. member of Congress who hopefully will be on the podcast soon. So stay tuned as we stay try tuned. to. Hit, the, hit that side of things as well. Uh, let me shout out some, someone else. I mean, I, I, we could spend literally eight hours talking sure. about every single guest, and we're not excluding anybody. Well, we anybody. have done
0: 50-plus, David. We're pretty F- good at this.
1: We are, yeah, and, and you know what? I, and looking back at everyone that you've spoken to, it's hard for me actually to call people out as particularly good because there were particularly good aspects of every conversation, things mm-hmm. that, that made me really perk up. But one that really struck me because of the content, because I knew how you felt about the content, and it really came out if you listened to the episode, is back at the beginning of this year when you talked to Leslie Kane, mm-hmm. and you were chatting with her about, I don't know what to call them now, you know, UFOs or- uh,
0: Unidentified aerial UAPs, phenomena.
1: But the whole idea of you know these things, some of which remain unexplained, many of which are explained, but some of which remain unexplained, and now the openness that did not exist in previous decades to talking about them as a national security issue, not as a runoff to an alien conspiracy theory mm-hmm. area, Right. Exactly. And that was a really rewarding conversation because you got you got to go beyond the headline and you got to go even beyond some of her great reporting yeah on the issue to to explore a topic that I know you've been curious about for a long time totally
0: and you know and she really is you know one of the most credible arguably the most credible journalist covering this phenomena and you know it does not come out and say that there's a conspiracy by the government to cover up the existence of aliens that's not what she's writing about mm-hmm. she's writing about it with a much more clinical reporter's eye um, you know, I think Leslie Kane is very open to the idea that these could be extraterrestrials, but she is certainly um, also um, clearly recognizes that many of the sightings, I mean, have real explanations. Um, interesting, too, because, you know, this is back in the news again, you know, the ODNI report that came out, or at least as reported, the classified version that was sent up to the Hill, mm-hmm. finds that a number of these 140, I think, plus sightings that the intelligence community had been studying they find do have actually a a credible uh, explanation right. uh, that is that they are either drone aircraft or some other kind of aircraft or they could be a sensor malfunction. Still more to learn about that, and it's yep. difficult because that report is classified. But that doesn't diminish, you know, the work that someone like Leslie Kane does. And what I admire about her work is, you know, she is taking a position of, you know, this is about. This is about asking questions. This is about the, the 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 journey of seeking information. It's not about trying to stake out of ground and say this is the answer. Mm. Um, and I admire her for that. And she, you know, she's dedicated so much of her career to this when she could have done any other number of things. I think it's hard writing about national security and intelligence. You know, imagine when you're writing about something where, you know, the facts may never be truly known in your lifetime. Mm. Um, that's a pretty, you know. Pretty amazing commitment um, and she's just like a, she's a great explainer she's a great talker uh, and I had been a big fan of her work for a long time this is another thing that's so great about you know at least from my perspective I think I speak for you too with so many of these guests they're people whose work we've loved and just the fact that they get to come they're going to come in and talk to us about it is a treat for us I mean I try in some of these cases not to like fanboy out on too many of these guests, um, if Eric Rochant, the creator of the Bureau, comes on anytime in the next several months, <laughs> I may still fanboy out on him. Um, but it is really—it's—it's it's a delight, and one of the things that I look for when I'm looking for a guest is, you know, who is somebody I would really love to talk to? I mean, if I ran into this person in a bar or I was sitting next to them on a plane and had them captive for three hours, who would I feel really <laughs> lucky to be with? Um, you know, and, and, and occasionally those are people I've worked with before, like Noah Shackman, who now is the editor of Rolling Stone. But for the most part, I try to find people who I don't know, but whose work I really have enjoyed uh, yeah. and 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 would just love a chance to, you know, ask them questions for an hour.
1: And within the, the space field, which if you can broaden out what Leslie talked about to wider issues of uh, space, astronomy, and issues of that sort, we've both done that, right? Yes. So I've been a fan for many years. Probably the podcast I've listened to longer than almost any other is Astronomy Cast. Mm-hmm. It, it just goes back to you know young David uh, as a probably seven, eight year old checking every book out of the local library that I could, having to do with space. And of course, many of the things I learned then are, are wrong now because science, mm-hmm. right? So Absolutely. formation of the moon, or how many planets are there, or are there planets or s- circling other stars? So much has changed since uh, I was that age, and so listening to Astronomy Cast for years and years and years, you know, getting on one of the co-hosts Fraser Cain to talk about it hit hit me in that way of mm-hmm. fanboy. I really want to talk to somebody who can engage on all of these issues, and and then you talk to Lucianne about you know, ethics of space exploration. And we we both get to hit it from different points of view. But I don't know. Do you think, I think like maybe that's an area we could talk about more, that we haven't exhausted or come even close to exhausting smart people that are fun to talk to about issues having to do with astronomy, aliens, space. And I feel in the coming year that's an area that we might try to turn the dial up to 11.
0: 100%. I mean, you've had just this year, let's think about you've had, just in the past week, mm-hmm. you know, the mm-hmm. Artemis mission launched, right. um, <clears throat> which is right now the Orion capsule is speeding towards the moon, uh, and we are going to be sending humans back to the moon over the next decade. The plan is actually to land in the not the next mission, but the mission after that by the end of the decade to mm-hmm. land. Astronauts back on the moon, which NASA has said one will be a woman and yep. one will be a person of color. Yep. That has never happened before. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, of course, we had the James Webb Telescope mm-hmm. sending back these just unbelievable images that had everybody spellbound. You know, for the days and weeks that they were kind of rolling them out. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to me, it's I mean, one of the things that I love about space exploration is that it is a reminder that we live in a world of wonder. It is still possible for human beings to be held in awe, Mm -hmm. despite how cynical and jaded we have become, particularly in Washington. Um, You know, we're reminded uh, of that by these, these adventures that are happening. And there are so many people out there who are working in this field who have incredible stories to tell, who have so many insights to share with all of us. And they don't really get a huge opportunity to come talk about what they do. I mean, Lucien Walkowitz is someone, you mentioned them, who deals in planning for and thinking about how you would build cities on other planets. Yes. How you would put them on Mars. What are the ethics of human colonization of other worlds? Things that may not happen in our lifetime. Mm-hmm. You know, things for which we may ultimately decide there's no reason to do them. Um, but... The fact that someone like them is thinking these things through as a profession, mm-hmm. is asking those questions, that it's informing research and exploration, is, to me, is, is amazing. And, it, and it's a reminder that we are still, as human beings, doing big, bold, creative, adventurous things. And we just don't hear enough of that in our daily discourse, particularly in the worlds that you and I travel in.
1: Right. So I'm, I'm writing down a list as we're talking of just things that I feel, and it may end up being more than we can chew and swallow, but that's one thing in the coming year that I'd really like to do is, is, is turn up some of those issues. And yes, we've hit it in other ways, like Aaron Bateman most recently connecting the space to the terrestrial by mm-hmm. talking about satellite weapons and their portrayal in media. So right. we, we are continuing it, but I feel like there's so much rich ground to explore and rich space i should say to explore there. that
0: makes me think i want an entire podcast just about the x-37b do you know what this is
1: we, well we could do like a, a serial podcast right oh like my god i mean that's but i want the visuals this is this
0: is for those who don't who yeah. don't know this is the thing that looks like the mini space shuttle orbiter mm-hmm. which just landed like 10 days ago i think
1: yep it it's florida been airborne, what, it three count. years almost three years yeah,
0: yeah so no one knows exactly what it is, other than it is a, it is a well, we know what it is, right. and that it's a vehicle we, that is launched into space. And, but it stays the of the and it's a long time how. Right. There's a payload inside of it, or there are multiple things inside the payload that are mm. very, very secretive. Um, so it's just, it's a fascinating project. But, you know, great example of, yeah. of something that every now and then that will pop back up in the news. But there's just, you know, tremendous interest, at least I think on my part and probably a lot of people's parts, for, you know, these things that are still. You know, these programs that are actively yet secretively exploring, you know, the world uh, uh, out there. Um, and uh, I know it's just, it's, to me what I love about some of these stories too is you can just go down so many terrific rabbit holes mm-hmm, you know, in a podcast mm-hmm. that lasts for an hour plus, lets you explore some of them.
1: Absolutely. And sometimes those explorations have been in the realm of fiction, right? Because yeah. fictional writers, and in some cases not just writers but producers of, of visual media, have a chance to, to dive into that in unique ways. Like, you know, you've talked with several people who have mm-hmm. been either the producers, the directors, or the writers of some of the most compelling, I don't even know whether they're called science fiction or just good human fiction that has elements related to national security, the future mm-hmm. of humanity, technology. And I mean, who stands out to you among the many that you've talked to that you found actually talking to them allowed you to, to dig deeper into understanding how they approach their craft?
0: I love talking to Daniel Silva for that reason, probably one of the best-selling spy novelists working today. I mean, the man is a machine. I mean, he has a book that comes out once a year basically during the same week in July. And he talked a lot about his process, which, you know, it'll come as no surprise to write a book a year. You have to write all the time. Mm -hmm. You have to be incredibly disciplined. Um... We I spoke with Jenny Lamette and Alex Kurtzman who did this terrific uh, Showtime series, The Man Who Fell to Earth. That's right. Um, I think, though, if I had to pick – if I'm looking over all of the people who I've spoken to who were in that kind of Hollywood storyteller vein, honestly, I think Nick Meyer was my mm. favorite. Um, <clears throat> Nick Meyer was the director – of the film The Day After. Uh, Um, And
1: uh, by the way, we shouldn't say only that. I mean, he did some amazing work on some of the most compelling things. Star Trek II, The Wrath Wrath of Khan. Khan is (laughs) just fundamental to me growing up, right? I mean,
0: look, I'm not saying that The Day After was not the more critically acclaimed important work, but you know, Star Mm -hmm. Trek II may be the best one. Uh, Also, he directed a movie called Time After Time, which if people have never seen that movie, you should absolutely go watch that movie. It holds up remarkably well. It's so good. I haven't watched it in years, but you're right. The last time I watched it it does hold up. It's about G. Wells going forward in time to chase Jack the Ripper after he steals his time machine wow. to go to 1970s San Francisco. Crazy. Um,
1: it's just great. But you talk the most about the day after because of its uh, amazing cultural presence in the
0: 1980s. Absolutely. But cultural presence in the 1980s and in relevance to today where we are once again facing the specter of nuclear war in Ukraine with Vladimir Putin still you know, threatening to use tactical nuclear weapons. The day after, when that movie came out, and I think it was 83. I think you're right. um, It was an ABC miniseries. Um, uh, It was a national event. And folks can go back and listen to that episode, and and we we go into that in some detail. But it it truly was like America stopped what it was doing one Sunday evening and tuned in to watch this movie. Hmm. And it was a vivid, horrifying, graphic depiction of a thermonuclear attack by the Soviets on the United States. You don't see the U.S. bombs going off in Russia, but that happens too in there. And then what the day after looks like, you know, so the nuclear winter, the debris falling like yeah. snow from the sky, the corpses, the, the, you know, the destroyed buildings, the people dying of radiation sickness. I was probably seven or eight years old when that movie came out. And my parents decided to watch it with me and my brother, which Nick Meyer told me. He said, your parents made a mistake. They should mm-hmm. not have let you that young watch this film. Wow. Um, Even it, though
1: it was on national It was on ABC.
0: Right? Yeah, Ted Koppel did a national town hall discussion about the movie afterwards
1: mm-hmm. um, that night. <clears throat> um,
0: everybody knew it was on. It, it, was, you know, it was advertised all over the place. Um, but it was a, a, a searing uh, experience. And it coming when it did in the... Really this kind of one of the peak periods of the Cold War where genuinely, I mean, people like alive at that time and, you know, kids my age thought there was a very good chance that we were all going to die in a nuclear holocaust. And then to see it depicted in film Mm -hmm. like that was terrifying. And I do think that it had, and we talk a lot about this on the episode, there's evidence that it had a, that it shaped the thinking of opinion makers, but also importantly elected leaders, including President Reagan. And made people really understand this can never be allowed to happen. We must do everything we can possibly do to avoid what is being depicted in this film. Uh, and you know, and I felt that then too. And you know, and it wasn't that many years later. The Berlin Wall comes down. The Soviet Union dissolves. And you know, and the and it and it becomes very difficult to imagine something like that happening. Mm-hmm. And so there's this feeling of tremendous relief. Uh, that, that, that accompanies that. But at that time when that movie came out, it was um, just earth-shattering. And, you know, what I also loved about talking to Nick Meyer, he's somebody who has stayed, you know, very active as a storyteller, and he's, yep. still, and he, he's a novelist. Um, you know, but he's had a longevity to his career, even though there are these movies that he's most well-known for that were many years ago. But he's an example of sometimes in your career you do something that is so singular mm. that it's almost, you know, in some sense it's bigger than anything you've ever done. And you will always be the person who made that film. Mm. And he's a real character. It's just, it's, it's just a
1: great interview. I thought that your, your ability to draw out from people – because they often will get the same stories when they're talking to the Hollywood reporters – not just Hollywood Reporter capitalized, but Hollywood Reporters. Yeah. You know, they're talking about aspects of uh, filmmaking and audience and, and things of that sort. But often they are not prepped by Constitution or by uh, any kind of preparation for the actual interview to talk about relations to national security themes. Right. That's what you bring. And, right. and you were able to give people, in many cases, a, a conversational experience unlike... Conversational experiences they'd had before, so maybe I'm projecting here, but it sure feels like some people, and Nick Meyer sure sounded that way, like somebody who said, you know, this this brought out some some parts of the conversation that actually enriched me as yeah.
0: well. Yeah, and that'll happen sometimes after the interview is over, when the tape is stopped rolling, or somebody will send an email later, and I'm sure you get this too, where they'll say, oh, that was really great. No one's asked me that question, or mm-hmm. I haven't done an interview like that before. Which, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't say that to pat ourselves on the back as interviewers, but um, I think also that it, it's the format of a show like this. Mm. And there just aren't that many of them out there. I mean, you know, and I, and listeners may not know this, but early in my career as a journalist, I did spend a year in Hollywood as an editor in a movie magazine. And what you see in that in, out there is it, it is very much that is the sausage factory. That, you know, interviews with actors and directors and writers are very often they can be negotiated. Um, They are very rote. I mean, these are people who go on junkets. They get asked the same question a hundred times, and they have to make it look believable and natural every time. There just are very few places where people can come on and talk at length about their work and get unexpected questions. And it turns out, no surprise, they crave it. And I think it's another reason why people like to come on this show, and hopefully more creative people will want to do that because that's the kind of – environment we're trying to create because it makes for such a good interview and as a listener you learn so many things that you're not going to get from a typical you know no disrespect to my Hollywood reporter friends but you're Mm -hmm. not going to get from that kind of format where you know it's it's very scripted it's very controlled that they talk about a movie and that's it and they have to kind of get in get out we don't do that here
1: people can't see this right now Shane but I'm physically restraining myself from jumping in and pursuing this because I, I reserve the right when you are finished with your manuscript. And we're talking about the, the Shane Harris work of fiction as something to talk about on this show, mm-hmm. to talk about the origins, the influence of the Hollywood reporting on that. So I'm I'm, I'm stopping this, um, but I'm not gonna say stop. I'm gonna say I'm just pressing pause. Okay, because good. we will continue this conversation uh, later. Um, a couple of areas we've gotten into over the course of the past year that that I have appreciated and I'm really interested in hearing your views on this because you you tend, you tend have focused more on the art world mm-hmm. uh, in various ways, Laurie Anderson, Trevor Paglin, others, um, and the worlds of fiction, whereas I have gravitated a bit more towards some of the interesting historical takes and what they illuminate about the present moment. So getting Joanne Freeman, uh, absolute superstar human being and historian, talking about violence on Capitol Hill mm-hmm. and and releasing that on the anniversary of the January 6th uh, attack. Um, and then bringing some history in one of, one of my areas that I appreciate, which is presidential history, bringing some stories about presidents that maybe people don't know as well, maybe their connections to aspects of fiction and pop culture, like Benjamin Griffin and I talked about, and maybe sometimes some areas around the presidency that are just underexplored, like... Olivia Troy talking about what does it take to provide national security support to a vice president, mm-hmm. which is a relatively novel phenomenon. So we I think we, but especially I, have tried to find ways to find unique angles on history, things that may relate to the current moment to to just shed a different light on it from a different angle to give us a better depth of understanding there.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and I, and I think that for for you, the one of the reasons why this is such interesting and gratifying, Um, interviews to listen to is, you know, you are an historian, right? You have written history. I mean, you've been an intelligence analyst. Um, You're just a very curious person. And so you, you, you kind of know what questions to ask these people, but which direction to take them in to get something unexpected. One of the episodes I loved, recently that you did was with Vince Houghton, Mm -hmm. who's the director of the National Cryptologic Museum, right? Yes, that's correct. Mm -hmm. um, Which is a great museum that you too can go see. Anyone can. It's open to the public. Um, It's not like at CIA where you have to kind of have like a special clearance and, you know, they run your social security number and all that kind of stuff. Good museum there too. But one reason that was fun is the two of you actually, he took you on a tour of the museum and listeners by now will know this is a... Uh, not a visual medium that we're working in, but to listen to the two of you talk about the exhibits and to describe them, it was like you were there, uh, which is uh, really gratifying. Um, but I think that we've spent a lot of time focused on, on history and trying to make it relevant mm-hmm. to people's lives and to the news. And, you know, this is not a pure history podcast, uh, you know, even when we've had people on to talk about, you know, um, chapters from the past, like when Damien Lewis came on to talk about Josephine Baker and her mm-hmm. career as an agent for the French Resistance. Um, we find ways to try and kind of root some of these stories in the present as well and, 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 you know, make them relevant to people's lives. So that's been a lot of fun to listen to.
1: That was such an interesting reversal. Uh, we both played against type there, right? Because you interviewed Damien Lewis about uh, Josephine Baker's history and the the, mm-hmm. the real, no kidding, deep historical research he had done into her role yeah. in the Second World War and beyond. And that was a matter of maybe a few months after I talked to Meredith Hindley, who was really focused on uh, Casablanca in particular mm-hmm. and the similarities and differences between the movie Casablanca and what was actually happening in wartime Casablanca with Josephine Baker playing a role because mm-hmm. she had moved to and from North Africa. And I think the pairing of those two episodes, and we've had a few like this, yeah. where inadvertently, at least it wasn't conscious on my part, we've, we found a couple of different uh, people to talk to that if you put the episodes together, if somebody wants to take an entire afternoon for the longest dog walk ever, you can do Damien Lewis on Josephine Baker and Meredith Hindley on Casablanca, and, and you've got a, an especially rich understanding. Or you mentioned Danny Silva and talking about his book that comes out every year and hits the bestseller list, and then I talked to Brad Thor about mm-hmm. his experience writing spy thriller fiction, having a book come out every year that hits the bestseller list, yep. and listening to the two of them and how they approach their craft similarly and differently is is enriching and sheds light on both.
0: One, and we, have, we could add David McCloskey first-time novelist, oh, yeah. uh, former CIA officer, to that list. Uh, it's been very interesting. I think my brother pointed this out. Um, he gets a kick because he knows I'm writing a novel. He knows I'm writing a spy novel. And so he's like, I hear you interviewing all these spy novelists. And he's like, You're interviewing them about their technique, aren't you? And That's it's right. like, Exactly. Collecting intel. Yeah, yeah. There's an element of that, too, which kind of goes back to there, there often will be kind of these selfish motivations that we'll have for having people on. You know, one reason why I like interviewing spy novelists is A, I like spy novels, and B, I want to know how spy novelists write spy novels. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I, I love talking to writers about craft. Um, and, you know, there are, and there are those points of commonality, whether it's to be somebody who's writing fiction or producing television or doing journalism, like what I do most of the time, where you do kind of meet all on the same plane, mm. where writing is a discipline and it's a practice and it's a craft. Mm. And so I feel like I both get to talk about them to something that I know very well, but then an angle or a dimension of it that I don't know a ton about and that I get to learn from them uh, and, and ask for tips. Uh, I think, I think that's nice. a good
1: observation, that on some of those episodes, it's, it's obvious why we have timing. I'll get to some of our timing in a moment, but for some of that, it's personal timing. Like, you are working on something, yeah. and you think, wow, I'd really love to have an excuse to talk to this person for something I'm struggling with right now, mm-hmm. on dialogue, on history, on depth of character description, whatever it may be. So there may be timing that's opaque, to to listeners. And then sometimes it's in their face, right? You talked to Catherine Belton in March as Russia was again invading Ukraine Mm -hmm. about Putin and his background and the people around him. Uh, I chatted with Eric J. Dolan about hurricanes as the most severe hurricane that hit the United States um, was hitting the the United States down in, in Florida. So sometimes our timing is exceptionally good. You already mentioned Artemis. You know, I chatted with Fraser Cain just as Artemis was about to go. And then, of course, it gets delayed and <laughs> delayed and delayed. So timing can't always be predicted. Right. But we, we try to find things that do connect to something that, yeah. that people are interested in. Even if it's a generic topic that doesn't have a specific time frame, it's got to be relevant to something that's in this general space.
0: That's right. That's right. And actually, that makes me think, too, that another interview I liked very much and that some, some people I know who listen to the podcast still to say it's one of their favorite ones was the um, – interview with Eric Schwartzel, who's the Wall Street Journal reporter Mm -hmm. who wrote uh, the book Red Curtain and all about how basically China became the most important market for Hollywood and the influence that China exerts directly and indirectly over what you see in the movies. And of course, this comes out not long before Top Gun Maverick, you know, mm-hmm. po- probably I'm guessing one of the biggest movies of the yeah. year, mm-hmm. hits theaters. And there was all kinds of controversy around that movie for modifications that they made to Maverick's jacket, to remove patches that were offensive to the Chinese government, to the fact that he's fighting this enemy that kind of looks like China, but they never say it's China. It's like North China, Russia stand or something. <laughs> um, and, but you, that movie attracted a fair amount of controversy and sparked a lot of conversation about About the influence that China has over you know um, culture and content because of course you know Hollywood makes a lot of money uh, showing movies in China so that was a nice tee up we did that in February Mm -hmm. and I feel like Eric's book came out right I mean he obviously was timing his book to come out in a year I think when he knew that Top Gun Maverick and these things were going to be on people's minds Um, but I liked it sometimes these podcasts serve as something of a primer for things that you're about yeah. to be hearing a lot more of in the news, and kind of give people a baseline of understanding, but also some some nuance and some texture to really start thinking about stuff that they're going to be, you know, hearing more about in the weeks and months to come.
1: And I think the timing there, unless my recollections are wrong, which is entirely possible, it was a rough year, is that that was around the time of the Olympics, and you can't talk about the Olympics Ex- in, in exactly. China, and it was of course it's relevant at the time to then uh, and. Also, we did have Ethan Shiner on talking about the history of politics, national security issues impacting the Olympics. So we've done that in multiple right. You do Hollywood, you do you do history, you do you do sports, as we did with the start of the NFL season and, and Kevin Bryant. So we, mm-hmm. we we do try to find hooks. We do try to find ways to make things seem current for people, even if they they aren't necessarily. But. Sometimes they're just enduring topics that, that we hope you're interested in because we are. It's that simple.
0: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, 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 and it helps when we have people who, um, guests who don't mind coming on to do something just like that. I mean, a lot, yeah. a lot of times the guests will really, you know, especially writers, sometimes they're reluctant to go on unless they have something to talk about. Mm-hmm. You know, I have mm-hmm. a new book that I'm working on or I have a new show that's coming out. I mean, I won't name names, but we've we've invited some people who yeah. are well-known writers who say, "No, no, no, that's getting into like a subject. I, I don't know anything about." Well, your show's kind of about it. Yes, but I'm not an expert. You know, uh, th- some people are quite reluctant to come on unless they have, you know, a real kind of you know guidepost for the conversation, which is just a way of saying, since we're giving thanks, thank you to these guests, many of whom are willing to just come on and talk about their
1: work and to be vulnerable enough to say, "I'm I'm not an expert on this." Um, and I might be proven wrong. Like yeah. I might say something that's an actual incorrect fact, but I'm willing to engage in the conversation.
0: Totally. I mean, I think, like, you know, our friend Mary Louise Kelly came on. She's written novels and, you know, is on NPR, All Things Considered, all the time. We've been trying to get on for, for a while. Like, we had finally had our schedules aligned, you know, and we just came on and talked about stuff and talked yeah. about her books and talked about her work. And it wasn't. Um, you know, it was perfectly fine not having a precise hook to do it. Mm. Um, and, and it's it's nice when you have guests, as so many of them are, who are game uh, to come on in a show like this. Because it can be, I think, listeners might be surprised by this, but for a lot of these people, many of whom are visible public people, it can be very intimidating to come on a show and talk about themselves for mm-hmm. an hour or an hour and a half. Mm-hmm. It, it does not come naturally. Uh, to everyone and, and to be subjected to questions like that. So um, many of these people are not people who like to hear the sound of their own voice.
1: <laughs> no, and, and even ones who people have heard the sound of their voice or they see them on television, sometimes it can be difficult to not have the five-minute conversation that they often get, right? right? And I'm right. thinking here of uh, John Wackrow, former Secret Service agent, Protective Detail, who came on right at the time when the January 6th committee was revealing information about what happened with the Secret Service agents who were with Donald Trump on January 6th. And that can be a difficult thing to, to talk about in real time and really mm-hmm. dig deep on. And of course he, he did, he's a professional, but he's not normally on CNN where he's law enforcement analyst. He's not normally there having a 90 minute plus conversation. Right. Right? That's right. not the norm. So it does have the opportunity to open things up a bit more one of the more fun angles that we've done in that regard is something that I'll put you on the spot here because mm. I, I hope we get a chance to do it more in the coming year, Okay, which is when you and I are sitting here, not, not separately, that is you sitting here and I listen to it when, it when it's released or vice versa, but when we are both sitting here talking yeah. to someone interesting. And we've done that a couple of times. As I recall, John Seifer, former colleague of mine, um, and then uh, Alex Finley, also mm-hmm. former CIA officer, but both both people who have gotten into the entertainment industry in different ways. And yet there's there's the opportunity for us to almost explore each other's backgrounds and our priors coming yeah. in as we interview them. And I, I'd like to look for opportunities to do that a little more.
0: I love those, too. And I think that we've heard a lot of positive feedback from listeners, too, that they enjoy when the both of us are, are talking to folks. And, and and those are both. I think both John certainly was talking about Hollywood, and mm-hmm. Alex, we talked about that, and spy mm-hmm. novels as well. Mm-hmm. Um, John was so interesting because he's now working as, I guess we would say, like a creative consultant, but also a producer, you know, trying to find original yep. ideas to make uh, into television shows and to movies. Um, I, I, it's fun because it's we're all in a room together, and that was also kind of early in those Times where we were just starting, everyone was coming back out again into public and, right. and, and being with one another. One of the things I loved about that conversation as well, and this this often will come up, and I think like this came up when you were talking to um, to Rick Prado, mm-hmm. as well, is the degree to which Hollywood or even novels accurately portray the intelligence community. Yep. Does it really look like that? Is that really how things happen in the real world? Mm. And it's so funny because my thinking on this has changed over the past year. Um, in the beginning, I, I, I was always very, and as I was starting to write a novel too, very um, committed to this idea that like you know the best fiction is the one that completely accurately reflects what happens in real yep. life. It's about and realism. I, yeah, yeah, and increasingly now I'm just like,, uh, maybe not so much. And it's not that I think that you know, I think you can go to the extreme where it's something like, like, I don't watch the Jack Ryan television series, but mm-hmm. I gather that that's probably in the realm of, like, okay, this is not usually how these things work. Um, um, but to me, it's more about are the characters believable than would it actually happen like this in the CIA, which is, in you know, in headquarters building, mm-hmm. which is not to say that books and novels, uh, books and movies that do that aren't admirable. I think they are, mm-hmm. actually. I think it's really amazing when somebody reflects it accurately, the way that... You know, clearly David McCloskey did with Damascus Station, where one of the things that you hear from people when they read it who were in the CIA was, This is what it's like to work in the CIA. That's just become like less of a requirement for me in judging whether fiction is successful or not. But those are ideas that I've been able to kind of work out in talking to people. Um, But I do love that so many people who we've had on the show, whether it be John or David or Rick, um, they get so incensed when Hollywood gets it wrong. Because it's their world, right? That's the world that they come from. And when they see it being misrepresented, it's just annoying uh, to them, which I think has been such a fun thing to hear them talk about. Rick especially, I think, right? I mean, he was, wasn't was much of the t- conversation that yep. the two of you had about how much it irks him when he right. sees these things uh, you know, intelligence operations being misportrayed because he feels that it's actually giving Americans a very negative impression of what the intelligence
1: community does, especially on the ethics of it, right? Because mm-hmm. and he focused more on the paramilitary aspects, right? right? The uh, Special Activities uh, Division, now Special Activities Center at CIA, and to the extent that CIA paramilitary operations are portrayed, it's almost always assassinations. It's almost, Or it's the rogue operator, the person who doesn't follow the rules but is doing the best thing, and it's almost always torture or killing. And his point is that that, I'm not going to say that bad things haven't happened ever in the past, uh, but by and large, you've got a very rule following group of people, and you need a presidential finding to do a covert action and all that. I'm on board with him, and for many years when I've watched entertainment with uh, in current or former intelligence officers, people I worked with, uh, or might have worked with in the past, um, that's usually been the vibe. What you said a year ago, which is watching it and just shaking your head and putting your arms together and like looking at each other knowingly and saying, mm-hmm. This is crap, this isn't anything like the real world, this sucks, and then watching the same film or the same movie with somebody who doesn't have the background and actually opening yourself up to the entertainment value mm-hmm. of it, yeah. realizing, Guess what, James Bond movies. Um, do not reflect any known intelligence service. Not at all. And yet, some of them are pretty freaking fun. Like, right. just enjoyable as as entertainment.
0: And, when they, and, they, and they have to be dramatically consistent, and the characters have to be interesting, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I've, I've said before, like, I'm not a huge fan of Homeland, and it's not because I feel that, like, Homeland misrepresents what life is like in the CIA. Some things mm-hmm. it gets right, some things it gets wrong. I just— Personally, didn't find the characters compelling. They got yeah. very, very tedious to me, and I found it often to be very dramatically inconsistent. Um, you know, there were seasons of it that were really good, but I didn't dislike Homeland because I felt that it was misportraying the life of a CIA officer. Um, you know, you could look at, you know, at John le Carre. I mean, I mean, most people would, I think, argue that he invented, you know, much of the idea about what it means to yep. be an intelligence officer. There's terminology that I think he literally invented. Um, nobody would say that Laacquarie Le was less of a great novelist or less of an important novelist because he didn't precisely nail what it was like to work inside MI6.
1: Right. Right. Well, I'll preview one thing I'm working on in the next year, and perhaps this is one that both of us will do is someone who has an intelligence background, but also has worked in producing uh, you know visual media involving this very issue because there was a hard shift in one of his projects from what was perhaps the most realistic portrayal of a certain aspect of intelligence to then moving to something that was seen as, you know, much more traditional entertainment, shoot'em up kind of stuff and kind of talking through the logic of what's the importance of a compelling character, what's the importance of realism when it comes to the daily work of an intelligence officer versus the real mission of entertainment, which is to entertain. Uh, So hopefully we'll explore that. I won't give it away, but we'll explore that sometime in the coming year. One thing I I know we we both want to continue exploring is finding avenues to get to that element we've both brought up here, which is getting to know the person mm-hmm. that we're talking to, mm-hmm. right? It's not just about their latest book project or about their their latest thinking on a topic that they have the experience to bring to the table, but it's about who they are. And the vehicle we've used to do that in part is the chatterbox,
0: Aha. right?
1: And at the end, and, and we're, we're sitting here together both uh, admiring and almost like that, that famous picture of the globe of the former president with hands on it, putting our hands on the, 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 the treasured Chatterbox. Um, the Chatterbox idea came up just on a whim, and it was the idea of let's use a, a method whereby we can pull out a literally a, a random question that are pre-printed, and we just shuffle them up, pull a question out, um, which has led to some awkward moments where we ask somebody a question that really doesn't relate to their background At or all. experience. <clears throat> and yet I found it <laughs> always entertaining. Um, and then once in a while we nail it. Like, I, I was just, I couldn't believe it, and I think I expressed it uh, audibly when I'm talking to Aaron Bateman uh, recently about anti-satellite weapons in space and what about this and this, and suddenly it's the question that has come up three or four times previously, but something about sending a manned mission to Mars. I'm like, sometimes the chatterbox is very wise. Yes. Right? But the chatterbox is something we've, we've tended to do, maybe exclusively, at the very end. Like, we do it after the, quote, main unquote conversation. Right. And then it's this one-off question about what book are you reading or what advice do you give to the president, whatever comes up. And I feel like sometimes that that ends the conversation with, with a very short answer. And yet, I think one of my goals going forward is to explore that answer a little bit more, to, to not use that as the final question, but to use that as the way of opening up a final Set of questions, Uh right? Yeah, Um, so that we don't miss out on some of the more interesting parts. Yeah, for sure. Of the conversation.
0: One final, one final point and departure in the
1: conversation. Yeah. So, what has surprised you in the chatterbox?
0: Sometimes people really don't like the question. I don't have great answers. Yeah. (laughs) When you ask somebody what advice would you give the president, and they're like, I'm a television producer. What are yeah. you talking about? <laughs> um it is kind of it, there are some times where the question really is just like, oh I wish I could like you know or like, or like you know, the um should we get rid of nuclear weapons? And someone just Oof. thinks like, I don't have a well-formed thought on that, but sure, yes, we should, I
1: guess. Um let me peel back the curtain, Shane. Have you ever asked a question, and it was such an awkward moment that you actually ripped it up and pulled out a different one. I and did we, do that. And once. we recorded over.
0: No, I did that once recently, and I can't remember who it was for, but mm-hmm. I think I even I think it's on the tape. You can hear me saying like I'm not asking you. Okay, that that that's fair. As yeah. long as it's on the tape, right? I the did idea. I did veto it once. <clears throat> I'm pretty sure. And I cannot remember who it was, what it was for,
1: but it was. I would say, for example, if we were going to interview Daniel Craig about his experience making spy films, and the Chatterbox chalked up who played the best Bond. That's when I think we could. We could rip up and and pull a second
0: one yeah because you just i mean you can't ask him that question because you're not going to get a straight answer probably um and there's better questions to ask someone like him Mm -hmm. um by the way daniel craig you should definitely come on the podcast um we also listeners should know we make a point of making sure that the past two or three questions that we have posed pull those out of the box we pull those out so that you don't get a repeat question so you won't hear the same question back to back you know there'll be some weeks that are separating it
1: um, Although I must I must admit, Shane, and I don't think I've told you this yet, a couple of weeks I've forgotten. Like I literally forget to go back and take out the question that you've asked in the most oh. recent interview or, or that I've asked. And it's only at the time that I'm pulling a question out and it will hit me saying, oh, crap. Because you know, not that it matters, but at a certain point, if we have just asked, you know, in what country other than your own would you like to live? Or mm-hmm. what's, what, what advice would you give your 20-year-old mm-hmm. self? I don't want to hear that three weeks in a row. I, I want to hear something unique and different, just from my own purposes. And a few times I've forgotten and uh, I've dodged the bullet so far.
0: I wonder if we should get more philosophical with these questions. Like, would you rather be, you know, uh, would you rather be loved or feared?
1: Oh. <laughs> We we could I mean honestly you know let's let's encourage people to um, to to weigh in with their their ideas is there something that yeah tweet questions and that was chatter yep yep that's right Twitter as long as it's still functioning by the time this episode is released who knows Twitter is a way to reply to this episode would
0: you want to interview Elon Musk Uh,
1: yes and no how's that for an answer yeah right I feel the same way Um, there are some things I really would like to get to in terms of his to the to the ability he would be able to express it and un- understand it and express it, and that's not a hit against Elon Musk. That's a hit against Homo sapiens. Yeah, uh, most of us don't understand our own thinking very well. But how did you get to what you did? Um, mm-hmm. How did you decide to do this? Yeah. Well, most of us, I think everybody wants to know that. We yeah. back explain our, our our own motivations, and we don't really know. But what do you what do you think you did and why? On the other hand, based on some interviews I've seen, they're not always um, what do I say productive. <laughs> some. <laughs> Sometimes it's, you know, he's he's trying to get a point across and mm. because he has many people around him who, you know, probably aren't people who say no, um, he tends to have people who who listen to him when he wants to say his piece. And I'm not sure that's the most interesting use of time.
0: Yeah. Like Kara Swisher needs to interview him. But I, no. I feel the same way. I, I also feel like I don't know that I would necessarily necessarily give – I don't think he needs a megaphone. Not that necessarily he would come on this podcast, but good point. But you know, I feel like he's eventually going to do an interview, and when he does, I really do hope it's with somebody you know like a Kara Swisher or mm. somebody who will really you know get into him. Um, and we won't talk about the guests that we are seeking out Mm-mm. for for coming months, but we do have a slate of people. Elon Musk is not on it. just no. spoiler alert.
1: No, I do not have him uh, on the list. Although I, I will preview slightly that. We, we do have several people, some of whom have already agreed uh, we're working on scheduling, some of whom uh, we have we, we have not received confirmation from. But the range is amazing. Like when I look ahead at the likely guests of the next few months alone, um, some of them just uh, amazing individuals we already know will be amazing. But some right. of the topics are things that we have not even come close to exploring yet, and yet intellectually are just fascinating. Yeah. And I know we'll, we'll yeah. dig down on them exactly. as well. So the... the Cheddarbox gives me an opportunity, Shane, to do something okay. I have wanted to do, do since it. we started this. I am going to shuffle and go. pull out a question that I will ask you.
0: Okay. Let's see if it's the one I've always wanted to get.
1: If you could give one piece of advice to your 20-year-old self, what would it be? Oh, that's
0: easy. Stop worrying so much, and stop being in such a rush. Were you a worrier? Oh God, I'm still a worrier. Um, I was in a huge rush to grow up as a kid. Um, I was, shock of all shocks, uh, precocious, mm-hmm. talkative, uh, inquisitive. Um, adults would often describe me as, to my parents, your son is so mature. Some of them meant it as a compliment. Some of them did not.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Some of them it was like, your son's very talkative. but Your son's
1: of, very forward. None of that necessarily... Leads to worrier.
0: Yeah, I think that's probably a separate thing. But like, I think I would have. I think in in this context, the advice I give to my twenty-year-old self is stop worrying about succeeding and just start enjoying more what you're doing. When I was twenty years old, I was in college. I was writing plays. I was in a sketch comedy troupe. Mm -hmm. You know, I had ambitions of writing, Um, and I think that I sometimes got caught up in the need to succeed and advance in what I thought my goals were and didn't spend enough time, uh, enjoying that process. Um, you know, there's a, a friend of mine, uh, who I love, who's an actor, uh, in LA, his name is Drew Drogi, And he, um, he's just had a tremendous career. He's been in the groundlings. He does all kinds of great Mm -hmm. stuff online. You've Mm -hmm. seen him in different like movies, TV shows, he was a teacher, uh, uh, and still does teach, but it doesn't do it as much now. Of improv, and he taught at the Groundlings, and he said, you know, one of the Mm. things that he told his students was, um, you are not in a race to get famous. (laughs) Take classes, do the work, uh, and enjoy it, and have fun. And I think that if I were going back to tell my twenty-year-old self that, it would be like, you know, just enjoy this more. Like, don't be in such a rush to get ahead.
1: Worry less about how it's going to work out, and let it work out.
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh, and chill out. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I think right. I was too serious at 20.
1: It takes me back to a, a line in a, in a song by one of my favorite artists, Steve Hackett, who's does a bu- many genres, but most famous probably because he was the guitarist for Genesis back in the Peter Gabriel era, mm-hmm. in the early 70s. But he's produced dozens of albums since then, everything from, you know, No Kidding Rock, to classical guitar to the blues to symphonic work and he had a line worrying is interest paid on trouble long before it's due oh that's good it's a beautiful line and i consciously come back to that when i find myself going into worrying mode Mm -hmm. saying is this something to quote worry about Mm -hmm. and if it's and if it's not interest paid on trouble long before it's due then it's really not worrying then it's Thoughtful planning, then it's mm-hmm. then it's necessary work for one's conscious perhaps, right. conscience, right? Or it's necessary work for for one's own practical life. Uh, but if it's something that's really long before it's due, that's a good check to kind of dial that back. I like that. A that's
0: a really good question to ask yourself, too, or a set of thought process to go through to know whether or not you're worrying is actually, as you said, planning, or whether it's just wheel spinning.
1: Right. Is there is there a question? that you wish you had been asked or something that you find yourself asking guests from the chatterbox that has made you reflect on it in your own head quite a bit?
0: Um, I think probably the, um, <clears throat> the should we get rid of nuclear weapons one is Oof. one that I often love to hear. Uh, it's a weird question because there are some people who get that question and they don't. I think we haven't asked it in a while.
1: I, I know it came up and honestly I'm not remembering whom it came up Four.
0: Um, but it, it's a yeah. hard, it's a hard one. I mean, look, it, it, it's it's.
1: It might have been Jamie Kerchick, actually. Um, it, might, uh, it, might it have was been. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it was. Yeah, <clears throat> and I can't remember what he said. Yeah,
0: <laughs> that's terrible. Yeah. But it's a tough question in so it's many a tough, ways. It's right? a tough question, and I find myself lately saying no yeah um because right. I think and not to say that I think that nuclear weapons are good, but I think that we live in a world in which people not us mm-hmm. uh, not the United States are, are are inclined to use them and are openly contemplating using them and mm-hmm. I don't know how you one of the best ways to deter that is, is by having your own mm-hmm. but you obviously see the you know and this is not new, but the the cycle that that, Perpetuate. so I find that question being one that I've, I've often reflected on.
1: We have the power to remove questions from the chatterbox. box, do. so that is one we may replace with a suggestion we get. We may, mm-hmm. and
0: then I love it when I get the uh, you know should the U.S. send a manned mission to Mars, to which I say mm-hmm. absolutely,
1: yeah, yeah, no and question. And even even and as I would you, get on
0: it in a heartbeat.
1: You would. Oh, uh, this knowing is that a, you would almost certainly not come back a manned mission to Mars yes well I mean I think the point would be that it would come back as Fraser Cain has said multiple times space is trying to kill us oh, and that, Mars yeah, yeah, is a yeah, yeah, very yeah. very inhospitable no to
0: be clear like yes you very well could die yeah. on this trip but the whole point is that we bring them back right okay. I mean this is this is why we do the manned mission to Mars thing yeah or I anywhere mean, else it's a uh, it's like Kennedy said <laughs> send men to the moon and send them back safely to the earth there you go um, but no this is a deal that Joe and I have I've told him I'm like babe Seriously, if the ticket comes up, I'm going. See if you in 3 there's a safe years. way, you're there. Hell yes. Yeah. Even if it's not very safe. That
1: that, that huge, if if you have a a high percentage of returning to earth safely, that that that's a big part of it and very difficult even now. I that's why there are people working on it. Right? If
0: you told me there's a, there's a that the best that there's a ticket with your name on it and we want you as the writer or whatever to go. Yeah. Uh, but the best that we can guarantee is a one in three chance that you return, I would still go in a heartbeat. There you go. Hundred percent.
1: Mm, I respect that. I would do it. Yeah. So I'm um, sorry. I d there's so many other questions that I do want to ask you, but you know what? Eventually I may get a chance to formally ask you. So I'm gonna hold off on asking you more chatterbox questions.
0: But the chatterbox is open for you too, David. Uh oh. And I'm reaching into it. Oh, this is boring. I'm not asking you that.
1: Okay, the second time we've rejected a question <laughs> is right now.
0: <laughs> oh, this is good. This one I actually want to know. Tell us your favorite or least favorite spy or political thriller movie or TV show. Do both. Wow. Do your favorite and least favorite.
1: Wow. Oh, favorite is is actually difficult because they're they're favorite for different reasons, right? Some of them it's the Le Carre, it's the almost the the dark realism is actually entertaining in many ways, so it's hard not to choose one of those, and yet, I think we talked about this maybe with with Alex Finley, the movie with Melissa McCarthy spy yeah, is just so it's so good, incredibly entertaining now is it a spy movie? No, it's a no. comedy that has some elements to it that are you know kind of making fun of the genre, um but it is it is just purely entertaining. Mm -hmm. In the same way that, at least for me, uh, Team America was immensely entertaining. And that's one I have a very vivid memory. I went and watched it with a a fellow intelligence officer, uh, someone that I'd worked with uh, not too long, but gotten to know him well enough. For some reason, the stars aligned and the two of us said, let's go together to watch this movie. It is the, perhaps not the first time, although I don't remember a previous one, but definitely the last time that I've been in a movie theater and I was laughing so hard that slumped down in my seat to try to keep my stomach muscles from ripping. Yes. That I literally fell out of the seat. I I fell on the floor, so good, laughing during that movie. And it wasn't it wasn't during some geopolitical moment. You know, it wasn't uh, Kim in Korea arguing with Hans Brix. You know, in the in that moment, I think I think it was the extended vomiting scene. It, yes, it just kept coming. It's so gross and so funny. And at a certain point. I, I just could not control the laughter. Now, that's not in the genre, but I, I did see it with an intelligence officer. Yeah. So that that half counts.
0: Have you heard the story, it may be apocryphal, so mm. if it is, I don't care, whatever, um, uh, about the, the, when Trey Parker and Matt Stone got the first um, version of the puppets back from the puppet maker? No. So, again, don't were, know if this is were true. Were they like spitting
1: image puppets and just well, wholly inappropriate for they,
0: this? Well, no, they weren't. But they were spitting image in the sense not like the the, the famous grotesque puppets, but mm-hmm. in the sense that they were crazily lifelike mm. and they were in that weird uncanny valley place where when they looked at them, they just thought, no, 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 no. This needs to be more like they're because it's not Firebirds or it's Thunderbirds. It's, it's yeah. the show from the '70s Which where they are puppets that was, yeah. and so they basically sent them back and said, redo these and make them not so creepily lifelike. Yeah, dial that back. So yeah, they're okay. so distracting.
1: Wow, I hadn't heard that. Yeah, but that makes sense because there were the facial features were uncomfortable. Yeah, but but the rest of the puppetry was so obvious that that's. Part of the comedic value. Yes, exactly, right? exactly. Yeah, I don't, I don't know about my necessarily my least favorite in in the genre, right? For me, it probably is that whole subset, and maybe it's more than a subset. Maybe it's the majority of films that sell themselves as spy mm-hmm. movies, um, where it's nothing about spying. It's an it's about an assassin, right? Yeah. It's somebody who goes overseas. The body count is outrageous. It's higher mm-hmm. than most horror movies. And sometimes it's things like driving around Prague and shooting and this and the police chase and then it's this. And, and it's just explosions halfway across the city, you know. And then they sit down in a hotel you know, room and smoke a cigarette and move on to their next right. mass mass killing. Right, right. And I, I admire a well-crafted action sequence. You know, you can look at uh, Heat or Ronin. Mm-hmm. And, and you can find somewhere just you, you you take yourself out of the movie for a moment and look at it from uh, almost a director's eye. And yeah. you're like... Okay, I get it. This is special. For the most part, I find them tiring, mm-hmm. and especially when it's supposed to be some kind of a, a spy movie and it ends up just being an action movie, I I don't enjoy it as much.
0: Yeah, no, it, that reminds me too of you know one of my well my one of my favorite movies of all time, maybe the favorite movie of all time is Hunt for October. Mm. There was a movie, and I'm gonna. It's, was it called? like five fathoms deep or something like that.
1: I have no memory of There's this this
0: kind of phenomena that goes on where there'll be a really exceptional, successful film, and then some two-bit studio will make what is just clearly a (laughs) knockoff of it. But, you know, and this I think Five Fathoms Deep was one of those where it was just I remember seeing it with my father and, like, he pointed out that the submarine was um, all the – there was wood paneling all over everything. He's like, oh. you know, wood burns, right? <laughs> um, among it, this movie's many just horrible uh, uh, inaccuracies. But there are whole categories of films yeah. like that that are just iterative mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. dumb and just bad. Um And then, you know, even franchise ones where, you know, they miss. I mean, I thought No Time to Die was the most recent Bond movie, right? It was a mess. Yeah. It was like four different villains. Like, I I couldn't – who am I supposed to be rooting against? It
1: was just – Yeah, I still go back. I know we've we've asked several guests about the Bond movies, and they are so important to the cultural imagination around, quote, espionage. Even though some of them are not espionage movies at all, some of them – Casino Royale, is is a little bit more Mm espionage-y. Yeah, yeah. Um, So you get to the best Bond, you get to the best movie. I I honestly like most of the scripts for the early ones. You know, you Only Live Twice, Goldfinger. I I find myself going back to those more often than I go back to some of the more recent ones. Mm -hmm. And you just said something that it it might be the first time I've realized it. It's, It's more about the simple, there's a villain. Right. Yeah. There's there's Orrick Goldfinger. He's larger than life. Yes. He's he's important enough that Michael Myers decided to run with it and do, you know, gold member out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's something about that. I like complex movies. Otherwise, you're, you're not going to watch a lot of the ones we've also shouted out before. Mm-hmm. But when it's when it's a Bond movie, you're there to be entertained. You're not there to activate that part of your brain where you have to run the version of a of a link chart or an Excel spreadsheet yeah, to yeah. understand who's doing what. Yeah to whom among the villainy um i I, so i think that's why i probably appreciate the early bond films more and why sean connery probably bumps a little bit higher in my hierarchy it's not necessarily because of sean connery although i think he 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 played his version of bond well i think it's because i i appreciate them as simple sit down don't have to engage my entire brain movies
0: yeah that's right that's right and 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 they look great too i mean i think The story about when they cast Sean Connery, they said the director's like the fact that he moved like a cat. Yeah. And there's just something about the, you know, the the, the visual language that the Bond movies create and, you know, everything from the title sequences with, you know, the eye moving along. And they're just things that we learn to expect that it creates, I mean— I'm sure people have written books about these films, and it's, maybe it's, you know, maybe we'll find those people and have them on the podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, but the few few movie franchises have done that as successfully as the Bond franchise.
1: Have you yet watched Andor, the new television show in the Star Wars? Universe? I have
0: not. Uh, I have not. I've, the only, I've only watched Mandalorian. Mm. I don't think I've watched. I'm aware of some of the other ones, but no, mm. I have not seen Andor
1: because I've heard it's one of the best uh, modern fictional representations of espionage, obviously in a Fictional universe, at least we, we hope so. But uh, I'm holding off on it until I know I have the time to sit and watch all of it because Rogue One did so many things right when it comes yeah. to bringing in elements of, quote, our world yes. into something that had been, you know, space Western before that. Um, and Andor is supposed to be, in a sense, the fulfillment of some of those promises.
0: Oh, which yeah, because I was aware that this was on the slate, and that that was the it was yeah. going to be the espionage thriller of the Star Wars universe. Uh, another movie I'd recommend to people uh, that I saw recently that I feel like gets a lot very right uh, was Operation Mincemeat. Oh, which is about the plot to uh, by the British to make the Germans think that the British landing was going to come. Uh, in Greece, yeah. rather than in Sicily, where they actually landed, uh, and they do this by floating a dead body onto the shores of Greece, um, loaded with uh, supposedly secret plans mm-hmm. about the. Or I guess it was in Spain, actually, about the invasion yeah. of Greece,
1: knowing that the, the the Spaniards would find it and that those materials it the materials could get to the Nazis. Right, but
0: right. all the way that it had the the incredibly complex chain that this the whole thing has to go through to get to. Its ultimate intended recipient, and the way that they concoct the plot, mm-hmm. uh, that are, are the fake mission, and the you know choosing, the, down to choosing the corpse yep. <laughs> that they're going to use, um, is really really fun uh, and terrific. And uh, Ian Fleming, mm-hmm. creator of James Bond, uh, is a character in the movie.
1: How about that? Yeah, that makes it fun. Well, I have to say it's been a it's been a fun journey looking back at this. And basically, it is just over a year, right, that we've yeah. been doing this. So November
0: 50. 11th is when we had Oof. Joe Weisberg on, and it is now November 21st.
1: Now on happy anniversary, David. Happy anniversary. And and that is, those are words that sound weird in the last year. I mean, both of us have experienced, you know, the the deaths of our fathers, mm-hmm. the deaths of beloved members of our family, mm-hmm. of the non-human variety. Mm-hmm. Um, and it has been, I don't know about you, uh, it's been if not the one of the most difficult years uh, of my life and yet I can look back and give thanks for a lot of it uh, a lot of it is actually spending a lot more time with you yeah, than I course. had uh, up until that point to talk about chatter and often not to talk about chatter like literally yes. just to share stories to share emotions and I am trying not to get emotional but I'm, I'm immensely grateful wow. to that because you've you've helped you've helped me get through a challenging 12 months.
0: I appreciate that. And, and, and likewise to you, you've been a great support for me. And, you know, one of the things that we didn't talk about when we did when we talked about the origins of the show is that we knew when we did this together uh, mm. that, you know, we agreed that you would probably do most of the interviews and I would do fewer of them mm. because I have, you know, things that I, I felt like I could not commit to doing one every week. Sure. I just didn't feel like I had the bandwidth for it. Um, So you stepping in and saying, like, no, I can do this. I have the time for these uh, and I'll make room for you, too, has been great because without you, I would not have been able to do any of this. Uh, So uh, I think we both, you know, kind of came along for each other at the right point in this. And, you know, and I'll say, too, you know, one of the best things about doing these interviews is – you know, you do a lot of prep, right? You know, you have your list of questions that you want to ask people. I don't know about you, but for the most part then I kind of sit down and then mostly throw away the questions or just think I'm going to kind of get to them.
1: 100%, I remember when Sarah Churchwell was coming on and uh, to talk about her most recent work tying in the themes of Gone with the Wind and the cultural imagination around it to issues of America First, the America Dream. I had never seen Gone with the Wind. So my research was actually watching wow. that film and, you know, vomiting in my own mouth and disgust at much of it. Because yeah. I, I had not had the experience of watching it as a kid back when it was just oh, wow. part of the cultural yeah, background. Sure. But watching it now with everything that's happened in yeah. the past uh, yeah. several decades. Uh, and then thinking, oh, there's a million questions I want to ask her. And then just putting it aside, like you said. Having them in my mind, putting them aside and saying, you know what, it's about the conversation. Let's see where it goes.
0: And when I get to the end of them, you know, I feel like that was an hour to an hour and a half that I'm really glad that I took. As much as it can be, it's work and you have to make space and time to do these the right way, when I'm done with them, I think, God, I'm so glad we're doing this because they're just so much fun and they're gratifying. And I think that that comes across for the listeners too. And I love hearing from all of you who are listeners out there when you do like a show uh, or something meant something to you, please keep your comments coming, you know, find us on Twitter or Mastodon or whatever, Seal Shark (laughs) six, whatever the next thing is. Um, But we love that. I love doing these. I love being able to spend time with David and to spend time with our guests and to have that go out to you guys. So it's a a very gratifying part of the work uh, that I do. So I'm thankful for that.
1: And that's where we'll close with my thanks on behalf of Shane, my thanks to all of you listening on uh, to Kara Schillen uh, at Goat Rodeo, her colleagues, our colleagues at Lawfare supporting this. Uh, But To our guests and to the audience, I mean, really, let us give thanks to all of you for what you, you bring to us through this experience as well. And we look forward to doing more of it again in the coming 12 months. That was Chatter, a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at That Was Chatter.